it's not loud. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Maria Palombini, and I lead the healthcare and life sciences practice at the IEEE Standards Association. Um, when the gentleman comes back, I might want to help answer his question with regards to the question of interoperability around telehealth and the challenges and sort of what's the incentives of why or why not to do such a thing. But in the meantime, um, just want to talk about a little bit what we do I, at the healthcare life sciences practice. Our goal is exactly to address these challenges that we're seeing in the healthcare domain, including agriculture from food sustainability. Um, and when we say challenges is we see the proliferation of all these technologies integrating into the healthcare side. And the big question of trust, right? How do we trust that AI is working? How do we trust machine learning out outcomes can be validated? How do we trust blockchain? And for us, it's not just the idea of trust, it's about working with the volunteers, these multidisciplinary experts, to say, look, we can develop a standard so that when we use blockchain, it's as easy as using your cell phone, right? And what I mean by that is your cell phone uses the IEEE technology, uh, the standard um, for Wi-Fi, 802.11. This makes your cell phone connect or any smart device to, to Wi-Fi. That's our standard. So imagine if you had a device for or any kind of technology you're using in healthcare to be as seamless as I just turn it on and it works and you don't have to think about, is it going to connect? Is it going to connect with another device? That's the idea of the standard, is to make it seamless and credible so that you, don't you can alleviate these questions and continue to innovate. So this is what our panel is gonna be about today. We are gonna talk about um, a little bit about uh, kind of the work we're doing at the IEEESA around telehealth. We have an incubator program that's really trying to tackle all these different areas of the telehealth platform. So for us, we're not looking at telehealth like in the simplicity of an RPM or just you know having a call with your doctor. This is more about the future of mobile health, your tele-ICUs, your urgent care, autonomous ambulances. These are the things that we're starting to tackle from a foundation level so that we can really enable those true innovations to happen. So those are different things, that, and we'll talk a little bit about how you can get engaged in that if you're interested. Um, you know, one of the questions I get is like, why do we need tech standards in the healthcare life science industry? I think that the core point is, is that we have this ongoing issue of data portability, um, the question of cybersecurity, protecting devices from hardware to software to the distribution to the cloud storage. Um, you talk about anything from validating out outcomes of you using AI regardless of anywhere in the healthcare system. These are all the things that we're tackling from a standards point of view. So this is how we engage and work with all, and just to note, just because we are an engineering organization, our, our plans and our participants are all um, from different walks of life. So what I mean is we have clinicians, we have researchers, we have regulatory, we have engineers, we have manufacturers, all participating in the development of standards. So, so this is our panel. I'm delighted to bring um, Josh Rabinowitz uh, from Articulate Labs. He's actually one of our winners of our telehealth competition, which was focused on innovation, but it wasn't just about the next shiny technology. It was about developing solutions that either address accessibility, feasibility, um, equity, 
so there was like six criteria beyond just saying this is a cool technology with a cool algorithm in it. So um, Josh is one of our winners. And also we have Valdemir Bozin, who actually is developing a really cool technology. Um, that's And he talks about his experiences, and I'm going to let him talk about it. But the idea is how do we make it feasible for the patients to use these technologies, right? So again, our focus is not just how great the technology is, but how it's really moving towards this idea of patient-centered care, feasibility, accessibility, equity. These are really core fundamental topics that we have here at IEEESA, and this is in all the work we do. So I'd like to hand it over to Josh. I think you have, let me see, make sure you have slides. Awesome. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh Rabinowitz. I'm co-founder and CEO of Articulate Labs. Uh, our company has developed platform technology for integrating elements of physical therapy into everyday life by synchronizing the use of neuromuscular electrical stimulation with muscle usage during everyday activity. Test one. All right, cool. Sorry about that. Um, so um, quick, just super quick story. We got into this literally by accident. My co-founder lost his right leg in a motorcycle accident and developed osteoarthritis in the knee of his fully intact leg. He wasn't able, to, physical therapy was highly effective for him. He was advised to delay surgery, but he wasn't able to make it uh, to all of his physical therapy sessions because of work, because of family commitments, because of the fact that physical therapy was a half hour away. Uh, that's what got us started on the idea of figuring out how to take some elements of physical therapy and bring them to the patient when the patient couldn't come to PT. Uh, so fundamentally what we, uh, what my co-founder did, his, much of his backgrounds in controls, uh, control systems and embedded design, he adapted an operating system he had uh, developed previously for uh, powertrain and uh, engine control and basically adapted it to start looking for environmental factors as created by a human limb. Uh, what we're doing with the, uh, with the onboard uh, operating system is uh, basically reading and reacting to forces modeled upon the joint and using that to dynamically drive muscle stimulation, timing, and location. Uh, first application being focused on the knee, partially because of, of personal interest, partially because uh, 15 million in the U.S. are symptomatic and seeking treatment for knee osteoarthritis, uh, another million recovering from some form of knee surgery, all of which are contributing about 15 billion in, uh, in uh, direct expenses every, every year. Uh, the ability to uh, model forces on the joint and drive, and drive the stimulation dynamically allows us to, accommodate, uh, to have a deep level of personalization, to accommodate joint laxity and malalignment, and fundamentally to meet the patient where they are, as opposed to trying to impose a gait cycle upon them. That is, uh, first of all, there's no one average that's going to fit to everybody, and furthermore, there's no, uh, there's no way to pre-program for or anticipate the compensatory movements people will learn as a result of living with a chronic musculoskeletal injury. Uh, so uh, we really appreciate the time to be here. Uh, appreciate Maria and the rest of IEEE uh, giving us a chance to, to uh, share our work. Uh, we're uh, always interested in talking with more folks, especially if you're uh, interested in orthopedics or physical therapy. Thanks. So next, uh, Vladimir. Hello. Check. All right. Hello, so I'm, um, oh, this is, maybe. I have a slide. I know he submitted them. He, they're, not, they're not showing up. Uh, try to keep going, keep going. Uh, nope. Nope. Uh, all right. Acapella. Sure. Um, they won't be as pretty, but we could go with that. All right. 
so I'm more of an academic, so I kind of look at wearables from academic perspective and more of look at what we can do with these devices that we couldn't do before. And why we find them attractive is really because we had all these lab tests that we could do in the hospital. We could take your blood sample, run analysis in lab, and in a couple of days we'll get you a number. Now we can actually do that in minutes with a simple wearable device you could put on yourself and almost forget about it. Now, you've seen these kind of commercialized in commercial uh, fitness trackers because they're not that accurate. No one cares to go through clinical clearance for them, and they can be nice. But what's really exciting is if you take those devices that are not really clinical and do some machine learning on them, you can actually start to do disease diagnosis um, with, the, with these devices that aren't really clinical-grade devices. And that's kind of the neat application that we work with um, because if you have enough data, you could start doing disease diagnosis and patients actually want it. So for example, if you do sleep apnea, uh, if you have sleeping disorder, you do not need to go to a sleep clinic. So that's where you pick a day, one day, that you go to a sleep clinic and they put a bunch of devices on it and hopefully you get to sleep for six hours and they'll diagnose a sleeping disorder that you have and experience you know, every other day in one day which isn't really feasible, so what we like to do is actually make devices that people put on themselves and then just forget about them. And go on, and we can record data over weeks, months, and then actually diagnose somebody over that long span of time, a place of just one night. So then this way we can actually diagnose and actually personalize the solution to them and give them information, not that, oh, you should sleep eight hours, but you know what, if you don't go to sleep in the next hour, you're not gonna be as alert for your presentation tomorrow. So maybe you should do this. Because that actually motivates people to follow on an arrangement. And we started working on um, wound healing as kind of an application for this technology because I'm not gonna motivate the need for wound healing in this uh, community, but it's kind of a problem. And the big issue is that we don't really have good tools to monitor wound healing. You know, the way we do it now is that during bandage changes, the doctor looks at it, or nurse looks at it, looks at the measurement of it, and that's it. Maybe they do debridement, um, which is quite painful to actually scrape off the top layer of um, biofilm that forms, then image it. And then they get a data point and that's how they know what's going on. And then they will do some regimen, maybe do some treatment, and hope the patient comes back to actually look at what happened in, to the wound in that time. Unfortunately, patients don't come back. You know, their wound hurts, they're gonna go to an urgent care, they're gonna change the bandage, and then if they see the appointment is the next day, they're gonna say, I don't wanna go through this pain, I'm just gonna skip it. So then we don't actually get any data on what is actually happening with the patient. And that's why we developed a sensor that you would see. We had one version that was, you know, kind of used the type of technology uh, flex, uh, hybrid flex technology that you know, was supposed to be very good, but we ended up having a lot of um, silicone to cover it, and it really didn't work because the patients didn't like it because after all that you put on all the dressing, it just didn't work for them. It caused pain, they'll go to the urgent care next day, and then we would never get the device back, and we don't know what happens. So we completely redesigned everything. We made this new polymeric hard, um, substrate, put all the devices on. It's thinner than a piece of paper, and it's really nice, and we passed cytotoxicity with it, and it's really imperceptible. Because the idea is that the patients put it on and they just forget that they wear it. And they just go on and we can collect data and then actually look what's happening without them having to take their bandages off, go through all that pain of debridement and put the bandages back on. So that's really the, our idea of what wearable devices are. It's a device you put on and you forget you're wearing it. And then we get enough data and then we can actually do diagnostics that is advanced, you know, because we're not using clinical grade devices and also because we can personalize it to you because we've seen what you are like for a month or more. And then that's kind of where we think this is going. Thanks. So does anybody have a question? Because 
I have some questions with um, our panelists today. So naturally, the question <clears throat> as a, a caregiver is, you know, it's it, especially I have one wound care and I have others who had issues with physical therapy, that kind of thing. You know, you really don't know what's going on, right? You're taking person A to the therapist, to the doctor, and they're like, okay, it looks like this. When they do wound care, it's getting better. They eye it, and you're like, oh, okay. But you have really no, you know, as a person in technology, you have no real data to support this is happening or not. And the same thing with physical therapy. So my first question to Josh is, when you were, when you guys were developing the technology, obviously based on a personal real-life situation with your partner, um, you know, what was, what were you guys thinking from a point of view of patient-centered care from the idea of caregiver support tools or not just another device to make your knee work better? Like, what exactly were you guys envisioning at that point? You know, in initially, when we, when we started developing this, it was you know, we were solely fo focused on the act of quadricep strengthening and retraining. To, to us, that was a good unto itself. Um, it was obvious, it was, you know, it, we couldn't, you know, and, and this is, a, this is a, the failing of pretty much anyone who uh, develops the technology and kind of falls in love with it and fails to kind of uh, talk to anybody else about it. It's just like, I get it. Everybody else has got to get it too, right? Um, and that, for, you know, we had to force ourselves to talk with end users, you know, talk with clinicians, talk with patients, talk with payers, talk with uh, regulatory, uh, regulatory affairs uh, uh, people, uh, uh, consultants, so on and so forth, uh, to understand, you know, kind of peel back the, the layers of the onion and see that for a lot, for a lot of the issue, it's not the uh, inability for these patients to, uh, to you know, to generate strength or, or to you know retrain inhibited muscle. It was an element of convenience. Um, it was uh, it was an element of not being able to have to budget sufficient time for self care, being able to do, um, you know, to understand everything that they needed to do with physical therapy, and seeing that we might play a role in helping, you know, add some level of autonomy, uh, uh, autonomous behavior to this, uh, to this action, and, and actually to leverage the user's everyday movement uh, to achieve that goal, as opposed to asking them to set aside specific time for that, uh, for that purpose. Uh, we started getting a lot more traction when we started kind of getting out of our own heads and started talking more with folks about what they wanted, and then, you know, our vision started, <laughs> we, we had to kind of change our vision around to, to what other people wanted and needed as opposed to what we thought was obvious. Vladimir, what about you? Yeah, so our vision was that, you know, data is great. Patients want data. Doctors want data. But it all really came down to pain. Uh, because with our, day, with our measurements, we could actually see this patient doesn't need a dressing change, and that's what patients want. They don't want to go through pain if they don't have to. Um, and that's what we realized after our first device failed, and we learned a lot of things mm -hmm. that pain is a big deal, that that's what patients really care about. They care about not being hurt more because they don't really care about that they're healing. They kind of an idea, but pain is their main problem that they have, pain of dressing changes. So that's what we actually went to alleviate with our monitoring. That we could actually say, hey, patient doesn't need dressing change. They can hold off for another week and be happier. And actually made it better for um, nurses because now they knew, okay, maybe I could skip this patient. I could see more patients and treat more uh, patients this way and hospitals liked it because they could make more money that way. Um. So as, uh, as we know in connected device land, there's always this question of security and privacy. <clears throat> so I guess my first, I'll start with you, Vladimir. What about some of the considerations um, for privacy by design? Like 
protecting the patient's data, you know, the, from that governance, those issues? Yes, for us, for our level, it's kind of a big challenge right now. We're not addressing it that much just because um, communication is a big challenge and the data we're sending out is not. You would have to know what we're sending for it to be relevant. So at this point in our development, we're not really doing a lot in terms of um, device security, but we have a team that we work with that do AI machine learning for data security, and they're looking at this. But right now, it's not really part of our devices. What about you, Josh? Uh, so as we're, we're approaching... Uh, FDA, you know, the, the point of submitting for FDA clearance. Now we, you know, we, we, we are absolutely have, uh, being forced to, to look into that. And I'll, I'll you know, I'll admit we're we're working with partners uh, that have a lot more expertise in uh, in this space, specifically uh, folks that uh, not just have the understanding of HIPAA and, and data security, but also have the uh, have the ability to their their backend would more readily integrate with EHRs, EMRs that, that currently exist. You know, outside of that, we're trying to figure out how to make sure that we are encrypting data from the, you know, from the device as it's as it's being generated, going to the going to the user's phone, going off uh, going off to the cloud. Um, and the, I think the challenge we've run into there is that many uh, many developers that we've spoken to in the app and backend space are very comfortable with you know kind of using last year's or you know. The, you know, currently existing, currently known security standards and not really thinking about what's going to be next. And we know that, um, you know, the FDA in particular is, is getting a lot, a lot more uh, interested in cybersecurity and that what works now is not going to work tomorrow or next year. So really, you know, the, it's required, it requires us to understand a lot more about encryption, about data security, about uh, how, to, how to handle everything from beginning to end. Uh, in order for us to be able to actually manage and push the developer that we work with uh, on on having a level of, of security that we think will actually hold up uh, in the future. Excellent. So, you know, I talked to quite a few. We have a telehealth startup community, and we talked to different startups at different phases from design to prototype to actually starting commercialization. And I've had a few come to me and say, <clears throat> God, I wish I had a technical standard for this. So one example was I was talking to a company that was doing an ingestible chip. Um, and the biggest issue that they spent the most time on was the communication technology. Like, what do I use uh, Bluetooth? Do I use low data transmission? Do I use Wi-Fi? Obviously, Wi-Fi is high-powered and too expensive and energy consumption. But they're like, we just wish we had a standard for this. This would have made our lives easier because we are not a communication technology company. So that was just one example. I thought a good one, by the way. Uh, so what about you guys? Um, Vladimir, was there something in your mind you say we wish there was a technical standard to make our lives easier? Absolutely. With a lot of these devices, communication is the biggest power-hungry application that we have. So we're not really streaming music. We're just sending a few bytes of your data every few minutes. I mean, clinically, maybe about f every five minutes. Mm -hmm. So Bluetooth, while it says low energy, it is not very efficient for us. We, it, you know, it doesn't matter if we send you know, five pieces of data the amount of energy we're going to take up is going to be the same. So really, the overhead of Bluetooth is really big. And if there's a standard we could send a small amount of data, of data, that would be great for us. What about you, Josh? So I, I, would, I would second that for sure, because we're, we're, we're actually using both Bluetooth legacy and low energy on, a, on our device. And that creates some, some challenges, especially with a wearable that, that comes with a battery. Um, you know, our we've got a relatively unique challenge to the community that, that's concerned with standards, and that's really thinking about 
how to, you know, when we're looking at AI, um, we're looking at, at anything that's going to be theoretically adapting to a user. How do we think about this, you know, how do we think about these in standards relative to the end user rather than as absolutes and averages to be applied across millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people? Because um, that's supposed to be the promise of what you're able to achieve with AI and, and, and ML is the ability to, uh, you know, have more, gran you know, use more granular data, achieve greater levels of personalization, but everyone's going to, you know, everyone's going to have, to some extent, differences in what is and is not healthy for them uh, across all their systems. And how do we make sure that a standard actually accommodates that so that, um, you know, for us, knee range, you know, knee range of motion, uh, just saying absolutely, uh, you know, this person's at 34 degrees, that's bad. This person's at 35 degrees, that's good. Uh, that's not ultimately going to be good enough for actually determining whether someone's getting better. So, uh, you know, being from a standards organization, I, I tend to, you know, really focus on this because sometimes we lose, you know, we, I often hear, like, innovation would be, like, quashed with technical standards. And the reality is, if you think about here, what these gentlemen are developing, right? We look at it as a monitoring tool, right? We want to see something get better. We want to see something. But just think about if the data was integral and able to go back into R&D, right? If it could be interoperable, if it could be validated and consistent the way, let's say, you count the 34 degrees, like regardless of what type of wearable. You know, all of these things can go back into R&D to make better therapeutics products, different types of surgeries, whatever it might be to ultimately enhance patient outcome. But in our current state, we can't do that, right? Because data, there's proprietary algorithms in each of these devices, how it's generating the raw data. It can't be ported out unless you're part of a clique. I hate to use that term, but like there's a group all working within this one particular type of platform. These are the things that we're trying to break down these barriers to. Um, but I think, um, you know, if anybody's interested or has ideas, like what are the challenges you're seeing in development of RPMs, right? It's not just about how fast they go and how pretty they look and how small they are and how long they last. They're, these are all great features and they help patients, but we also have to think about the future of the patient. Um, my last question for these guys is, you know, you guys have already started to break the bounds on innovation. Like, where do you see the future of RPM going in addressing and moving towards more this idea of patient-centered care. Um, I'll start with you, Josh. So I, I think in general, because we're, we're, you know, we fall more into the new, you know, remote therapeutic monitoring, uh, you know, instead, you know, rather than, than RPM. But I, I, I really hope to see within that, um, I, I'd love to see musculoskeletal care get the same level of interest that other systems get. Um, if we're using if we're using the the analogy of a car, um, this you know when we're, when many times when we're talking about musculoskeletal injuries, it's the equivalent of of having a blown tire or having a problem with your suspension, where people uh, are either either believe it's okay to or otherwise encouraged to just keep go you know keep driving on that tire and then act surprised when other things within the car start breaking down over time. Um, so being able to uh, being able to have that care. Being, you know, having it being considered throughout the life of the patient or of the user, uh, having it be being addressed before you have a, a major comorbidity pop up that may have stemmed fr in part from a movement disorder or a, a, a lingering injury, um, 
and, and in general, just just trying to move towards preoperative, non you know non invasive, non medicinal uh, options. I, I I'd love to see that. And you, Valerie? Oh. All right, I'll give the blue sky vision <laughs> of a lot of things that I've heard today. Is that we just it would be nice to have like avatar of your health online that you could have for the, your life. Um, right as you go between different devices, because let's face it, devices are not going to last more than a few years. So it'd be nice to compare my data from five years ago to what it is now to actually maybe see, oh, is there some kind of disease that's been developed? But that's going to require a lot of collaboration between companies who don't like to share data and maybe government who also likes to care about your personal data not being shared. But I think that would really um, push the healthcare forward and actually, you know, get us diagnostic data to actually improve people's health. Um, if we could have like a digital avatar that shares everything for the rest of your life. And I'm sure that would bring a whole nother set of data complexities with that. Um, <clears throat> does anybody have any questions for our startups? Uh, you guys are too nice. Um, so from my end, uh, I s I'm sitting in that corner over there. Uh, anybody who's interested in joining our telehealth startup community, uh, again, that could be from you're in concept all the way to early stage production and commercialization. It's free to join. Uh, it's really a think tank for these kinds of ideas, uh, like this is what we need, you know, to continue to innovate. Um, as far as the telehealth incubator program, I see some of our participants are here. Francis is here and Dimitri's going to be speaking later. Um, and they're really looking at incubating ideas for potential standards um, to help, obviously, the global community at large in the telehealth space. Um, so if anybody's interested, our programs are all open. You don't have to be a member. You don't. You just obviously volunteer your time, which I know is very, very valuable. But if you're interested in making a change and helping to really address some of these issues, please stop by and come by and see me. And um, I want to thank our panelists. Thank you guys for sharing your ideas and obviously always pushing the bounds of innovation to help patients. And thank you guys for listening to us this morning. <laughs>